Welcome to PM Lessons Learned, a podcast for project managers, helping project managers by sharing lessons learned. Increase your PM knowledge, build business relationships, increase your effectiveness, increase your marketability, gain professional support. Join our group and take part in our conference calls. Details at pmlessonslearn.com. Hello, and welcome to the PM Lessons Learned Monthly PMP Exam Study Group Conference Call and Podcast. This is podcast number 165. We are recording the session on the 2nd of October, 2014. We are totally focused on the 5th edition of the PMBOK Guide. My name is Dana Safford. I'm the host of the PM Lessons Learned Monthly PMP Exam Study Group Conference Calls. I've been a PMP since version 2 of the PMBOK. I'm also a certified ITIL version 3 expert and a Microsoft Certified Systems Engineer. I have over 25 years of project management experience in the IT industry. Right now, I'm an escalation manager at Red Hat, and in this role, I take a very complex situation that affects a Red Hat customer's enterprise production environment, and I manage a project with a virtual technical team that quickly resolves the issue. So remember, you don't have to have the term project manager in your job title to be an actual project manager. As far as announcements go, we still are in dire need of volunteers who would like to restart our best practices call but we don't have enough folks to do that. So if you have some time you'd like to give back to the project management community, please let us know. We'd love to have you volunteer. Let us know you'd like to do that. All this stuff is on our website, www.pmlessonslearn.com. Look for the volunteer piece in the left-hand column and help us out if you could. Our presenter for this session is me, of course, and our topic is PMLL Project Procurement Management Part 1, PMBOK 5E. We'll do only one process in this session tonight, and then we'll finish up the other three processes in the procurement area in the next session. On July 31, 2013, the fifth edition of the Guide to the Project Management Body of Knowledge, also called the PMBOK Guide, became the basis for the Project Management Professional or PMP exam. This month's PMP study group call continues the deep dive into the PMBOK fifth edition or 5E. In this session, we'll focus on the project procurement management knowledge area as you look at the first process that belongs to the project procurement management knowledge area is laid out in the fifth edition. I will provide insight and practical examples for everything you need to know to build your critical knowledge mass and pass the PMP exam on the first attempt. If you haven't already downloaded a copy of this session's presentation, please do that. If you are in the live freescreensharing.com virtual meeting room that we're in right now, files in the meeting resources box. When you log in, you'll see the down arrows next to the file names. Go grab that. If you're not in the virtual meeting room and you want to download any of our files and podcasts for any of our PM Lessons Learned session for the fifth edition, go to www.pmlessonslearned.com. And in the left-hand navigation column, you'll see a link to files and presentations. Follow that, and it'll take you over to where all that stuff lives. And when you're over there in the monthly PMP exam study group call file area, you'll see the slides for this session. The file name is PMLL Project Procurement Management Part 1 to October 14, PMBOK 5E. It's a PDF file. The title is exactly the same, PMLL Project Procurement Management to October 14, Part 1, PMBOK 5E. Lots of stuff there. Lots to spit out there, but the file is there. Go grab that. And also, while you're in there, You'll see a PMBOK 5th edition brain dump, a PMBOK 5th edition study resources file, and a PMBOK 5th edition ITTO database file as well. That will help you out studying all that stuff. There's a lot to remember there. And remember, the Internet is a very big place. If you choose to use study material from another source, make sure you know it's PMBOK based. Now that July 31, 2013 is behind us, you want material based on the 5th edition of the PMBOK guide. You should remember this roughly about a 50% difference from the 4th edition to the 5th edition. That's my estimate. Other instructors will give you slightly different numbers. But, of course, your mileage may vary. But the point here is there's a lot changed. And all those changes tend to be in the knowledge groups, the processes, and their ITTOs. There are changes elsewhere, but that's the bulk of the change. And remember, there's still a lot of evil people out there that will sell you material from the 4th and even the 3rd editions of the PMBOK. If the material or website doesn't explicitly say that its material is based on the 5th edition, then leave it alone. So please be very careful as you're finding stuff out there. Okay, so we are pmlessonslearn.com, project managers helping project managers to make a difference. I thank you in advance for those participating in this month's call and those who download and use the podcast. Let's move over to the slide deck and get ourselves started here. 
on the first slide, we have a summary of the calls that we like to have when we are at full strength, which we're not right now. We're only having the first box there, the monthly PMP exam study group call. Why? Because it's the first Thursday of the month. So that's what we like to do on the first Thursday. And when we're at full strength on the second Thursday of each month, we'd love to have our PM lessons or job shop call, but we can't get that going because we need volunteers. Finally, on the third Thursday of each month, we'd love to have our PM Lessons Learned Best Practices call. And in this call, we normally would provide a presentation on a wide variety of project management and soft skills topics. So please volunteer and help us out there. If you'd like to listen to any of this stuff, you can certainly do that either by phone or we'll grab the podcast. You'll find how to do that on our website, www.pmlessonslearned.com. And we have a LinkedIn and Yahoo group as well. Both of those are aptly named PM Lessons Learned. So let me move on to the next slide, and we'll do our call norms. This is an interactive call. At least I'd like it to be an interactive call, but I've muted all your lines, so it's going to make it tough for you to uh, ask a question at the moment. So you'll need to do a star six to unmute your phone. Uh, don't mind being interrupted at all. I'd rather have you ask me a question on slide seven and instead of waiting until slide 50 at the end of the presentation or something along those lines. So I can't remember anything from the top of the stairs to the bottom of the stairs that my wife tells me. Maybe you're in the same boat. So don't be afraid to interrupt me. Just do that star six. Get my attention. Yell out my name. Ask a question. We'll go back and forth a bit. And then I'll ask you to do yet another star six and remute your phone. Okay. So there's that. So let's move on to the next slide. And here's our email address if you have any questions or would like to volunteer to help out. PMP study at pmlessonslearn.com is where you should send an email off to, and we'll try to do what we can to help you out, or you help us out for that matter. I'll move on to the next slide. There's a bit of legalese here. The participants in this call are meant to use the contents of this session as additional study material. You all hopefully have study guides of varying ilks out there. Much of this session comes from one of those guides. It is the Project Management Professional Exam Study Guide, the seventh edition, written by Kim Heldman, put out as part of the Cybex series by John Wiley and Sons. The ISBN number is right there, so you go right to the seventh edition. That's the one you want for the fifth edition of the PMBOK guide, so you don't use the wrong thing. There are a lot of bookstores out there, both online and brick and mortar, that have the old versions there. I keep finding them in bookstores, and when I see someone with a guide, I check, interrupt them on the bus or not on the bus or in the car or in, in the station, whatever, and say, hey, what version is that? You got the right version there? And I routinely find people studying the wrong stuff, and using the wrong stuff is going to hurt you, so don't. So with the Kim Heldman stuff, the Cybex series, I'm using all this with the permission of the publisher. I'm a registered instructor with John Wiley. I'm going to move on to the next slide, and here's the title of what we're going to be going over, Project Procurement Management, Part 1 of two parts. It is October 2nd, 2014, and we're on 5th edition, so I'm going to move on to the next slide. And we're looking at a very big, very big table here. Anyone who's looked at the PMBOK already will figure out that what you're looking at here is Table 3.1 that has all the 10 knowledge areas, the five process groups, and there's a grid in there, and some of the intersections of the grid have nothing in them. Some have six things in them. You see a yellow strip down the bottom in knowledge area 12 in this table. That's what we'll be going over in this session and the next session, talking about the project procurement management area. And I'm going to move on to the next slide, and we'll see a bit more of what we're going to be going into in this session. Here's our agenda. We're talking about PMLL Podcast 165. We're talking about 5th edition of the PMBOK, Project Procurement Management. And one process we'll be talking about in this session, 12.1, the Plan Procurement Management. And that's all we'll have time for in this hour, roughly. So move on to the next slide. And we'll start getting into some meat here. Talk about procurement strategies. Basically, they're frameworks that your organization is going to lay out for you to allow you to help the organization attain its objectives, whatever they happen to be. And now they can be at different levels. You could have a corporate procurement strategy you know, where you work, where the company dictates uh, across the board what it is you're going to be doing procurement-wise. Uh, or you could have a project procurement strategy where just for your particular project, if there's nothing larger in the corporate side, maybe you're going to do your own because you know you're going to have to buy something, either your entire project or a piece of your project, or maybe not at all. In that case, you can ignore the whole procurement area for your work, but not for the exam because certainly there will be stuff on the PMP exam going over procurement. So the strategies you have to pay attention to. They can be corporate, they can be project, and actually they can be a middle one too. If you've got a large company, maybe each division has its own procurement strategy. It can happen, but you need to, for the exam, worry about the corporate strategy and the project strategy. Moving on to the next slide. 
And there are some objectives you have to worry about as well. What are they going to be? Are you going to procure all of your goods and services from one source? Is one objective to go by. You can call that a strategy as well, but objectives tend to be at a little bit lower level. Or you could also procure things from multiple sources, so you sort of spread things out, you know, putting all your eggs in one basket, if you will. Or you can procure only a small portion of goods and services, or maybe nothing, nothing at all. It depends on your project and what you're trying to do. So those are different types of objectives that you can use. Moving on to the next slide, we see an organization chart style of the processes that make up the project procurement management knowledge area. There are four of them in the whole knowledge area. We'll be talking about the one on the left-hand side. And in the organization chart style, we have the four other boxes. They're vertically aligned. So looking at that left-hand box, we see a whole bunch of stuff there, but it's, but it's really small. It's wicked small. I live right outside of Boston, so you're going to have to be used to hearing me say wicked a lot. Very small. This is an eye chart. So let's sort of move on to the next slide. We'll get an easier to look at view with that in a little while here. We're going to be talking about procurement planning as we go through things. And you see a couple of big red dots where the bullets are normally on here. Those big red dots are exam points for my slides. So that as you are going through my slides, that means this particular point has been on the exam recently. Uh, I talk to a lot of people who take the exam, and I ask them, well, what, generally, what was on there? I don't ask specific questions. You know, what, was, what was question number 135? That wouldn't be ethical. But you know, how many ITTO questions did you have? How many questions on this or that you know, type of thing? General things. And if they want to offer a specific, I won't say no, but I'm not going to get down to what was on the question and what's the answer to question 27, something along those lines. Here we see two exam points for things that were on there recently. First is you need to perform each process in the procurement management knowledge area, beginning with planning and going all the way through closing if you're going to do a procurement for your project. Okay, so you have to go through each and every process. You cannot skip one is the point for that one. And then the other exam point down there, if you're procuring all of your resources from within your own organization, the only process you'll perform in this knowledge area is plan procurement management. And that planning is, hey, I'm not going to do any procuring, uh, but you need to state that in your project management plan is the point there. So at least, you, so to, actually, no matter what you do, you're going to do planned procurement management. And if you're actually going to do a procurement, then you do all four. That's another way to look at that. Okay. So let's move to the next slide, and we'll get to an easier-to-view version of the things that are in the planned procurement management process. Process 12.1. We see the now the horizontally aligned boxes of the inputs, tools, and techniques, and outputs. This is a bit easier to read, and we see that there are nine inputs. There are four tools and techniques, and there are seven outputs. You see a numbering scheme there as well. So those that help you study, they're not on the exam. So if you were talking about, let's do an example, the enterprise environmental factors input for plan procurement management, enterprise environmental factors is the most used ITTO in the fifth edition. It's used something like 30 or 40 times, if I remember correctly. So if you're talking explicitly about what's involved in the EEFs, which is the abbreviation for Enterprise Environmental Factors for Plan Procurement Management, you're talking about element number 12.1.1.8. It's not in the exam, but it helps your study in a study group or something along those lines if people want to talk about things that way. So that's all this is going to give us. So I'm going to move on to the next slide. We'll talk about plan procurement management specifically. It's the process of identifying just what it is you're going to be purchasing from outside the organization, what goods, what services, whatever that you're going to be buying outside. Or maybe not. Part of that decision we'll get into make buy in a little bit is you have the decision, the choice, I should say, that you can make it or you can buy it. And maybe you want to make it. You never know. It also involves identifying what needs can be met by the project team around making and buying and procuring and things like that. It can help you determine whether you should purchase and how much you should purchase, all of it, some of it, whatever the case might be. There's a big exam dot down there as well. The PMBOK itself discusses procurement from the buyer's perspective, not from the seller's perspective. Okay, so as the project manager of a project, you are buying services from somebody else. That's the point of view of the exam. Okay, so anything we're talking about is from the buyer's point of view. Let's move on to the next slide. And we'll actually get into the inputs. There are nine inputs, plus I'm going to add one. So you're going to have a lot to look at here. I'm going to read them off in case you are on a bus or driving the car. They are project management plan, 
requirements documentation, risk register, activity resource requirements, project schedule, activity cost estimates, stakeholder register, enterprise environmental factors, organizational process assets, and I'm adding team agreements, which if you had picked up studying from earlier editions of the PMBOK guide, it was there. It's not called out explicitly as an input, but it still is in the PMBOK. It's buried, so I stuck it here because it's a relatively good place to put it. Let's move on to the next slide, and we'll get into these guys. First, there is the project management plan. And this is going to contain information that you're going to use to develop your procurement plan. It's going to give you some goals and absolutes that you have to pay attention to. The first thing you see there is an exam point called the scope baseline. Scope baseline is something that's very important. Uh, a lot of baselines in the fifth edition. The scope baseline is one that includes your scope statement. We went over that in our scope presentation from quite a few sessions back. And there's a thing called the work breakdown structure. That's the breakdown of all the activities. It looks like an organization chart. If you've seen one already, fantastic. If you haven't, you'll get to it once you do your studying. And then to back up, to add depth, if you will, to the work breakdown structure, there's a thing called the work breakdown structure dictionary. And that provides details for each of the boxes that's in your work breakdown structure, because your work breakdown structure is going to be a box with a couple of words in it, several different branches. And the word dictionary has all the details. Maybe in the work breakdown structure dictionary, it's going to say you will procure this particular activity from outside. Right? So that's why you need to look at the scope baseline to see if things like that are in there. Also, the scope statement is going to give you constraints for the project, uh, what you'll have to pay attention to, what you're not going to have to pay attention to, start no earlier than or finish no later than type of thing, or the other way around. It works both ways. Again, more work breakdown structure stuff, looking at the deliverables. If someone's already done that for you, fantastic. You can see what's there. And maybe there'll be some control account information. That's a numbering scheme, sort of like what we saw when we looked at the ITTOs in this process a little earlier, but in the work breakdown structure, in the organization chart style or the work breakdown structure, each of those boxes has a number. And that's called the code of accounts, control accounts, so that for item number 5.6.2, you can begin to accruing costs and time and schedule. You can start adding things to that particular control account so you know how much it's costing you, how long it's taking you, things along those lines. Everything's numbered. It's different for each project. You don't have to worry about what the number is. You just have to know that one exists for the exam. And you can assign the control accounts, that numbering scheme, at any level of the work breakdown structure. Let's move on to the next slide. We'll talk about requirements documentation. Now, with requirements documentation, it's just so what it sounds like. You're going to solicit what your stakeholders want you to do in your project. You could have a whole lot of stakeholders. You could have just a few stakeholders. But you should ask those stakeholders what they want. That way you can meet their needs. You want to satisfy your stakeholders and maybe even delight your stakeholders would even be a better way to look at things so that they get what they want and they're happy with what you've given them. It's always a good thing to do. So pay attention to your requirements. Document them in something because those requirements might have to be contractual or legally binding things. Like if you're doing a procurement, chances are there's a contract. Right? So you have to pay attention to all those things and also have to look at safety, health, performance, insurance, IP rights, all kinds of regulatory stuff as well. It should be in your requirements documentation depending upon your industry. For the exam, you'll say that's where you're going to go to find all this stuff as well. I'm going to move on to the next slide. We'll hit three of them. First is activity resource requirements. These are in the work breakdown structure. We're back to that work breakdown structure thing. You've got activities in there. Or you can also look at your scheduled network diagram that we'll talk about in a little bit as well. Your project schedule, you've got the boxes there on both of those things. Oh, well, maybe there's a certain resource that has to do that particular work. A certified crane operator is an example I like to use. But you could also have a procurement person doing an activity. And so that's the type of resource you need for that particular activity. Or a buy agreement goes into that activity resource requirement. Okay? So that's one of the things you have to pay attention to. And then there's activity cost estimates. If you've already figured out in your cost structure that activity number 5.3.2 is going to cost $10,000 or 10,000 euros, then you want to pay attention to that and make sure that you don't go over that. Or, you know, a procurement should cost no more than 50,000 euros, something along those lines. 
is where you're going to start understanding that once you receive proposals back from sellers, are the proposals too high, too low, what's going on? The cost estimate that you put together is going to give you a potential clue as to whether you can accept those or not. It's another way to say that. Let's move on to the next slide. We'll talk about project schedule. It's going to display the start and finish dates for each of the project activities, resource assignments, things along those lines. This contains the information on the timelines and the delivery dates and things along those lines. You'll have all that together as you're working through these things. And it'll either be handed to you or you'll develop it on your own But in the time management area, but you'll use that schedule as an input here depending upon the size and complexity of your project and the culture in your organization, then maybe some of these things might not be done yet. If you're doing rolling wave planning, you had a very long project where you're planning only the close-up stuff first, you do the longer out stuff later on, that's something you have to tie into your procurement if you're doing one in there. If it's way, way out, then you don't know so much about what the procurement's going to be. And you have to be careful because if it's way, way out and you haven't planned it yet, well, that's preliminary and there may be other things that will impact that procurement before you get to it. And so that's why the project schedule is important to procurements. Oh, and if you're going to publish anything in a schedule that it's not all totally figured out, then make sure the word preliminary is stamped all over the thing so people don't think that's the final schedule. You want to make sure that you're doing final planning against a preliminary schedule. So stamp it accordingly. Okay, now, hopefully you know what a schedule looks like. So hopefully the answer is not, I've never seen one before. We'll move on to the next slide. Here's what one looks like. Here's a quick example. Basically, as I said, it's a bunch of boxes with arrows connecting them. There can be any number of paths. This example happens to have two paths, an upper, starts off in, in, in the middle, and then right away to an upper path and a lower path, and after a few boxes on each of those paths, comes back to the middle, and there are three more boxes at the end that connect things together. Each one of those boxes has a word in it describing the activity. It's got, a, got some dates in there describing start and stop, and you can have all kinds of data in there. But that's what one looks like. That one has activity dates in there. So you can see what one happens to look like there. And move on to the next slide. And now we see something that's called a Gantt chart. Hopefully you've seen this already as well. Basically it looks like a bar chart. So it does the same thing that the graphical one did, but now instead of boxes, it's a bar and has start and stop times built into where the bar starts and where the bar stops. The bars are sort of floating in the internal part of the graph. They're easy. Management loves Gantt charts because they know how to read them, and they may or may not be able to see what's going on in the other chart that I just showed you with the boxes and the arrows. They can't see what really happens further down the line as easily as they can with a Gantt chart. All right, so that's what all that stuff looks like. It's pretty easy. All right, so let me move on to the next one, which is stakeholder register. Now, a stakeholder register is something you really need to build for every project. It contains details related to who you've identified as stakeholders for your project or who your management has identified as stakeholders to your project. And it can be a table, depending on how big your project is. If you're building a birdhouse, maybe it's just your spouse who wants to be a stakeholder. Or maybe the birds, but the birds don't have too much of an opinion, uh, I don't think, other than they refuse to move in. And that's them showing their opinion. They don't like what you did. Then you find that out too late, but hopefully in the front end you found out who your stakeholders are, you've identified them, and build a table. Or if you're doing like a space shuttle or rocket ship program, maybe your stakeholder register is an entire book. That can happen as well. Let's just go with the table version right now. Inside that table you want to keep track of a few things. You want to keep track of who they are, their name, what department they're in, because there can be political squabbles within a company for sure, the knowledge level that they possess for your project. Do they know anything about your project or anything about the technology in your project? If there's a technological bent, do they know anything about building bridges? Or are they politicians who just want to go around shaking hands? You know? But they're still stakeholders because they have a big voice in the community, things along those lines. What their expectations are, influence levels, and then contact information, things along those lines. Stakeholders can be internal, external. They can also be supporters. They can be neutral. They can be resistors. You want to capture that information as well because you're going to treat them differently depending upon how they regard your project. Okay, so there's that. Let's move on to the next slide. Then there are enterprise environmental factors. These are the things that you must deal with that you cannot change because you work in the industry or the company that you work in. And these are things like marketplace conditions, products and services that you need to use in the marketplace, 
certain suppliers that have a reputation for delivering product into that marketplace. And maybe as part of that industry you're in, there are certain terms and conditions that you have to pay attention to, you have to follow, and certainly any regulations, requirements, things along those lines. You can't change them, but you have to work within them and use them. And so that's what EEFs are all about. Let's move on to the next slide. We'll talk about organizational process assets. Now, these are the things that you can change that you have to deal with because you work in that organization or industry that you're in. These are the things like procurement policies and procedures and guidelines. You can maybe change some of those things. You can add to, add to them. Maybe you've come up with a new way to do, do procurements based on a computer program that you wrote or something along those lines, and you want to implement it within your organization. Well, there's some organizational change stuff that has to happen there, but the point is that you have the ability to change it, and that's why it's an OPA and not an EEF because you're able to make some changes. And as you do these things and create these new things, stick them in what I call the OPA bin or the OPA bucket or the OPA draw or binder, whatever you want to call it, your organization, so other people coming behind you can use that as well. The idea of an OPA is you share them with your peers and use them that way. If procurement support is not available, then maybe you and your project team are going to have to do things. If you don't have a purchasing department, is what that means. You're going to have to do all of your own procurement work. So maybe there are specialized forms because you know you have to do your own procurement work and you're not going to have a procurement department do it. And maybe there's a management system that you can use to keep track of all this stuff. And it might help you with documentation and help you decide what type of contract you're going to use in order to buy things. We'll get into contract types in a little bit. Okay, so I'm going to move on to the next slide. And we'll talk about teaming agreements. This is the one that's not an official input anymore, but it's a good thing to know about. Basically, they're used in a couple places across the planning process group. They're basically contractual agreements between multiple parties that are forming a partnership or a joint venture in order to do something. Okay? So you're going to partner with Company X in order to do the product of your project. Then fantastic. You're going to form a teaming agreement in order to do that. And you may not be buying anything from them, but you're combining your intellectual property and making some things happen. And if you're going to use one of those teaming agreements because it is a contractual thing, most likely you need to pay attention to scope, requirements, buyer-seller roles, and all that other stuff, and all the other legalese contract stuff because you are doing something in partnership with somebody else. And actually that is the end of the input stuff. So let me pause and see if there's any questions. Any questions on any of the inputs that I've gone over so far? All right, hearing nothing, I'm going to move on to the next slide. And we'll talk about the tools and techniques for plan procurement management. There's only four of them. They are make or buy analysis, expert judgment, market research, and meetings. So if you are off doing the dishes or doing the ironing, you know what they are now. And I'm going to move on to the next slide, and we'll begin to talk about some of these, not exactly in the same order that I gave them to you. We'll start off with market research. Well, market research is just what it sounds like. You folks probably have seen market research before. Going off and you're looking for information. And it can come from a variety of different places. And using that information, you're going to figure out what vendors you might want to send requests for proposals to, what their capabilities are, what their experiences are. And you can do things like that through Internet searches or going to a conference and asking people or going to brokers and asking people, going to other places and looking to see what you can find for information on a specific company. Are they well-equipped to work on your project or are they barely alive and they're going to file Chapter 11 or go bankrupt pretty soon? That's one you want to stay away from probably for the most part. And so financial stability is something you want to look for, the experience levels you want to look for, how deep is their knowledge pool? Is it very deep or is it very shallow? And such. And if you're doing a teaming agreement and they're going to be providing members to your team, just how good are they? How well liked are they? What are their styles? Things along those lines. You can find a lot of that stuff out if you look around for it. Payment customer reviews is another good thing to look for as well. Right. Moving to the next slide, we have the expert judgment here. This is one of the other often used tools and techniques within the PMBOK. Basically, you're going to ask for information, advice from the people who have already been there. You can get it from your stakeholders because they have a vested interest in you being successful, hopefully, unless if they're against your project. Then maybe you don't want to listen to them, but you want to ask them anyway so they can't say, well, you never asked me. It's okay to ignore 
advice from stakeholders if they're detractors. I've done it many times in the past, but you at least want to ask them for their advice and what they would do. Other project managers who've done similar things, industry experts, anybody else who knows where all the potholes are, as I like to say. It's a good place to go in order to figure out what you have to worry about. And then there's meetings. These meetings, since they're in the planning procurement area, are all about procurement. So what's your strategy going to be? What are your goals going to be? Things along those lines so that you can figure out just how you're going to do your procurements and where we're going to go from there, just how you're going to manage them and whether you're going to do them or not. All that stuff is figured out in procurement meetings. Okay, so with that, I'm going to move on to the next slide. Then we have a thing called make or buy analyses. This is where you get to figure out what it is you're going to do. You need to use one of these analyses to figure out whether you can build it cheaper or buy it cheaper. This is basically the way it works out. You have a few different alternatives that you can do. You can make or buy. You can lease or buy. You can buy or rent. You can lease or rent. And you can buy something either domestically or internationally, depending upon your EEFs, if you will, whether your company wants to keep everything domestically or internationally. They don't care where they get it from. Let's move on to the next slide, talk about the make decision. It's less costly, but not always. Sometimes it's cheaper to make something in-house than it is outside to go buy it. But it isn't always the case. Your analysis is going to give you that. You have to figure that out. It's easy integration into an operation because everything is internal. You can sort of make things tie out. You don't have to try to connect to an outside organization to see if their processes match yours type of thing. So it's easier to integrate with your normal stuff the way you do things. If you have capacity that's idle, people looking for something to do, then doing a make is a good thing. You maintain direct control when that happens so that you can control everything that's going on. You can maintain secrecy. Look at Apple and how they do their announcement for a new iPhone or an iPad, and two weeks later, you can buy it in the store. How secret was the building of that? And you don't go from announcement to first purchase in two weeks, do you? So they keep things very secret inside. So maintaining secrecy is a good thing. You can avoid unreliable sellers. And if you had excess capacity, you can stabilize your workforce and use workforce that just might be sitting around. Moving on to the next slide. Now, the buy decision, it's less costly, but not always. It depends. Sometimes if you don't have expertise in something, someone else who has expertise can make that widget for a whole lot less than what you can because you don't have the expertise to do it. So you see less costly in both of these things, but it really depends on what you're doing. So you get to go through that analysis. You can utilize the skills that these suppliers have. A lot of suppliers specialize in something that you have no credibility, no wherewithal in at all. So you can use their skills. Maybe there's a small volume as well. It doesn't make sense for you to, to make something because you're only going to use a small amount of something. Maybe you have limited capacity. You're already running at full tilt, and you can't spend the time building something. It allows you to augment your labor force. You want people working on stuff, but you only want it for a short amount of time. That way you can do short-term augmentations of your labor force. If you want, you can maintain multiple sources. Here's where that qualified vendor list comes in. If you're not sure that one vendor can make it or you want to spread the load out so that you're not dependent on one vendor for risk, you can do multiple vendors and multiple sources. It's indirect control. You don't have full control, but you can specify what you're going to buy and force your vendor to do that, but it isn't as much control as doing it yourself. Moving on to the next slide. Let's get into a make-or-buy example, if you will. This is something we're going to use called estimated monetary value. And for those who are walking the dog or doing the dishes here, basically we've got a couple of tables and a decision tree down the bottom. The tables are in step one, which you basically have to do. You've got to make, you can make something or you can buy something. So our, our top table here is the buy table, and it's got three rows in it. Success and failure is what those two probabilities were, 70% of success, 30% probability of failure. You can have more than three rows, but our first column is probability, and then it's the amount at stake, and then it's expected value. And we've got two tables that look just like that. So on a buy decision, we have a, a 0.7 or 70% probability that the amount of money at stake, what we're going to have to either incoming or outgoing, in this case, there's a 70% probability that if we buy, we're going to come up with $250,000 in this case. You can use whatever financial value you want there. But $250,000 will be coming in, all right? So income of $250,000. We have a 0.3 probability that it's going to cost us the negative $20,000. 
All right. First thing you have to do is make sure your probabilities add up. So 0.7 and 0.3 add up to 1. That's a good thing, 100%. And then you do the multiplication. And 0.7 times 250,000 is 175,000. 0.3 times is a negative 20,000 is a negative $6,000. There's minus in the front end. So 0.3 times minus $20,000 is minus $6,000. That totals the 169. Now our bottom table is the make decision. We've got two choices here as well. We don't have any more than two. So we have a 50-50 shot here, 50% probability that the amount of income and the amount at stake is $500,000. So that's an expected value of $250,000. Another 50% probability that's going to cost us $150,000, so a negative $150,000. And that math is $75,000. So that totals to $175,000. 250 minus 75 is 175000 so now we're down to the bottom, to the decision tree. We did decision trees a couple sessions ago, and basically you're going to draw a bunch of greater than signs, or if you were a left to right kind of person. And in this one, for step two, we have the buy decision on the top, the make decision on the bottom. So going up on the buy, we hit our first decision point where we have success and failure is what those two probabilities were, 70% of success, 30% probability of failure. So at the very top, we buy success. It's 0 0.7 times 250. We already know that's 175,000. We do the buy thing on the failure path, and the buy decision is 0.3 times minus 20,000 to 0.6. So that total is 175 minus 6, which is 169,000. Okay, so that's pretty easy to do. Now the bottom part of the decision tree is the make decision. We do the same thing, 50-50 shot here, so we have two forks coming off the make. So we have 50% probability of $500,000 or 250, and 50% probability of minus 150 or minus 75. Do the math, it comes out to $175,000. So by this decision tree, once you do the math, you have two outcomes, expected outcomes. The buy outcome is $169,000 positive, and the make decision is $175,000 positive. So strictly on the numbers, there could be other things going on here. All in an expected monetary value thing can get you are the numbers. So you've got to go see whether ethically, legally, morally, whatever else, Lee, it makes sense for you to do the make decision. But the numbers say, based on your analysis, you should do the make decision. And that's all that is. Any questions on that? I'll pause for a second. Star 6 to unmute your phone. Is there any questions? All right. Hearing nothing, I'm going to move on. And now we've got a rent or a lease decision going on here on the next slide. Renting or leasing is really a financial thing as well. Leases are generally longer term than renting. You're going to keep something for a while. You want to lease it rather than rent it because they tend to be a little bit cheaper. But they have upfront costs, and that's what we're figuring out here. Do we rent it? Do we lease it? So you have a company that's willing to rent you a piece of equipment that's going to cost you $100 per day. All right, and you're going to need this thing for, say, six months. We'll say six months, all right, 180 days we're going to need this piece of equipment for. But at the same time, you know you can lease that equipment for $60 a day, but it's going to cost you a one-time upfront charge of $5,000. But once you pay that, then you're going to get this thing for $60 per day. And you've got to figure out, okay, which is cheaper, renting or leasing. So it basically boils down to eighth-grade algebra, if you will. We're going to create a formula. We need to figure out the break-even point where leasing and renting are exactly the same, and then we look at how much time we need it for, and that tells us what we need to do. So we have to do a formula here. So if you're riding the bus, you're just going to have to picture this. You have an algebraic formula where X is the number of days to break even, and the formula is 100X. So we're taking the rental cost per day of 100X, putting that equal to the $5,000 upfront fee for leasing plus we know leasing is going to cost us $60 per day, so the whole formula is 100x equals 5,000 plus 60x. Okay, and then we just do the math. To add a minus 60 to both sides, or subtract 60 from both sides, do the division, and we find that the break-even day is 125 days from the start. We know we need this thing for 180 days. So since we need it for more time than the break-even, we should lease this particular piece of equipment because it's cheaper for us to do that. If we only needed this for 100 days, then it would be cheaper to rent the equipment because $100 a day for 100 days, the financial impact is less. And that's all a rental lease decision is. You figure out the break-even point, look at how much time you need it for, and away you go. Okay, I'll pause here if there's any questions on that. Star 6 to unmute your phone if there's any questions.
Hearing nothing, I'm going to move on. Moving on to the next slide. Now we're going to start talking about contract types. Now, they're not an official tool and technique of plan procurement management anymore. They used to be, but they're not anymore. But you still need to know about them, and this is the place to talk about them. You still need to know what's happening with all of these things for the exam. So for each type that we're going to go over in the next so dozen or so slides, you need to know the structure, the pros and cons for the buyer, and the risk profile for both the buyer and the seller. All right, so that's what we're going to have to go over. So let's move on to the next slide, and we'll begin all this. There are a bunch of them. I've got a bunch of slides here that I'm going to have you read through. I'm going to blow through these relatively quickly. There's a lot of information on these slides, so you'll have them for study material. There's a few different types. There's basically three major types, if you will. There's a fixed price, or also called lump sum type of contract. There's a cost reimbursable type of contract, and there's a time and materials type of contract. Those are the three major types. Now, inside fixed price, there is an absolute fixed price. That's it, nothing else. But there's also a fixed price plus incentive, or FPPI, fixed, fixed price plus incentive. That's easy for me to say. That's like a fixed price, but as an incentive to finish early, to finish with a higher quality level, some other type of measurable thing, you're going to kick in some extra money as an incentive to your seller to do more than what was initially asked. All right, so it's pretty easy. Then there are cost reimbursable contracts, and there's four of those. There's cost plus fee, there's cost plus percentage of cost, there's cost plus fixed fee, and there's cost plus incentive fee. They are just the way they sound. I'll go through an example in a moment, so I'm not going to read through these guys. Then there's time and materials is the third type. So you'll see time and materials here, T&M it's also called. And there's two big exam points down here. Now, understand the difference between a fixed price contract and a cost reimbursable contract for the exam. There will be questions on this on the exam. They still have them. And also know when each type of contract should be used. You need to know which party bears the most risk under which type of contract agreement. And we'll get into that in a couple of slides as well. So let's move on to the next slide and talk about these guys in detail. Okay. First, we're going to talk about fixed price. Sometimes it's called firm fixed price or lump sum contracts. Basically, as I said, a set specific firm price for goods and services. The buyer and the seller agree on a well-defined deliverable for a set price at a time. So the biggest risk on this is borne by the seller because the seller has to make sure they meet that need. They meet that deliverable. And if they don't, then the risk is on them to spend some of their own money in order to finish the contract or whatever the case may be. It's good for the buyer because they have a fixed price. They know up front what it's going to cost. Okay, So seller assumes all the risk for increasing costs, non-performance costs, all kinds of stuff along those lines. All right, So just be careful when you're doing a fixed price. There's more stuff on the slide, but I'm going to let you read that. I'm going to carry on in the interest of time. Moving on to the next slide, we have a little graphic here for the fixed price contract, also called firm fixed price contract. Basically gives you some bullet points. The maximum risk is with the seller, with the contractor. There are higher negotiated profit margins most of the time because the seller wants to make sure they're insulated, if you will, and the likelihood of scope change is pretty high because any change to which you've already agreed to could be potentially a hit in cost, a hit in schedule, and the seller is going to want to recoup some of that. So you're probably going to see a lot of negotiated scope changes with a fixed-price contract. There's a graphic down the bottom here. You're going to see a bunch of these on all the next couple of slides, and basically what this is saying is where the risk is. It's a risk-sharing meter, if you will. So picture a rectangle, and it's got a diagonal going from the upper left, which is where the contractor has the most risk and the buyer has none, to the bottom right, which is where the buyer, or, the, or you, the buyer, the buyer, everything remember we said as, as the buyer, has the most risk and the seller has none. Okay, so this one, the risk location is way up high on the contractor side, way up in the upper left-hand corner. Contractor, the seller, has the most risk. All right, moving on to the next slide. So we have fixed, fixed price, fixed price, I'll spit it out yet, push my teeth back in, fixed price plus incentive or FPPI. This is the same, as I said, as a fixed price, but there's an incentive built in so that if they finish three months early or at an extra quality level, things along those lines, there is incentive for the seller to do that because otherwise there isn't any incentive for them to do any of that. And they'll just go right to the letter of the contract. Try again. The buyer takes an increase but minimal risk in order to get the work done earlier by offering the, the incentive to get the work done, either earlier, higher quality, whatever the case might be. So if the seller thinks they can meet some of that incentive, then they'll agree to do it and see if they can meet it. If they don't, they won't. You know, it's pretty easy. 
Moving on to the next slide, here's that diagram again, the risk-sharing meter, if you will, that rectangle. Now with a fixed price plus incentive, the seller can earn additional profits. The contract has a ceiling on price or cost, whatever the case may be, and the ceiling is at the point of total assumptions. When everything is done, then you know what your price is. If they meet the incentive, then you know it's going to cost you more, they know they're going to make more. So on the risk meter, we're down and to the right a little bit, not way up at the upper left-hand corner, but we're down you know, uh, close to the middle of the box, if you will, because the contractor still has most risk, uh, but the buyer is now uh, assuming some risk. Moving on to the next slide. Now we have cost reimbursable contracts, also called cost plus fee, cost plus percentage of cost, or cost plus fixed fee. All four of those come into there. And basically, this is where the seller is reimbursed for allowable costs, whatever it's going to be, plus something. Maybe it's a set amount, cost plus a uh, million dollars, cost plus 10%, cost plus something else based on quality levels, time levels, things along those lines. But there's a base cost, and then there's something added on top of the base cost. So the buyer really doesn't know exactly how much it's going to be because the seller has to tell the buyer, well, it cost me X amount to make it, and here's my fee on top of that. So obviously the buyer, that's you as a project manager, have a lot more risk involved. Let's move to the next slide, and we'll see where that is. Looking at the risk meter again, we see that all costs are reimbursed. So if there is a cost run-up for whatever reason, we get flooding in Taiwan late last year, caused the price of hydro drives to go through the roof. So any PC maker, any computer maker, had all of a sudden all these cost run-ups in trying to buy hard disk drives. That's the type of thing that this would tend to cover, because now the seller has to buy disks at an inflated price. They're going to pass that cost on to you, the buyer. Right, so that's what that's all about. The fee is sometimes fixed, sometimes not. It depends on the type of contract. And it's irrespective of cost for the most part. If it's a fixed financial value, it doesn't matter what the run-up is and cost because it's going to be a set financial amount. But if it's a percentage, then it will have costs figured in as well. So the contractor is motivated to complete things early because there's nothing keeping them back now. The earlier they get it done, the earlier they get the money, they move on to something else. All right, and on the risk-sharing meter, we're down in close to the lower right-hand corner now. We're about a quarter of the way up from the right-hand corner. So the contractor doesn't have much risk at all. The buyer, that's you, the project manager, is assuming all the risk. Contractor, very low risk. Buyer, you, the project manager, much higher risk. Okay, so let's move on to the next slide. And cost reimbursable contracts a little bit more. There's cost plus incentive fee where you set some other incentive going that the seller might want to meet. They're motivated to do it, so they will. So normally that can be either percentage or dollars. There's a moderate risk for the buyer under the cost incentive fee contract. But if you write it well enough, they can figure it out, and everybody can win. It's just a matter of where you place things on the risk meter. All right, so that's all that slide is talking about. Moving on to the next slide, we get into cost plus incentive fee. Same story here. Contractor can earn additional profits. And on the risk meter, all costs are reimbursed. So the cost run-ups that the seller has are covered by the buyer. There is a floor and a ceiling on profits for the most part because the seller knows they need to meet their cost. That's the floor, but they have certain ceilings they can't go higher than perhaps in their additional fees, things like that. And penalties can be imposed as additional motivators here if you're not finished by time, a certain amount of time. On the risk meter rectangle thing, it's about halfway. Halfway in between is about a 50-50 shot with a cost plus incentive fee contract, something along those lines. Moving on to the next slide. And now I've got a table in here. I've got a matrix in here that I'm not going to go over, but it basically lists for each of those types, contract types I went over, what are the advantages and disadvantages for each one of those. And there's too much stuff to read there. But it's basically all the stuff I just spent the last 10, 15 minutes talking about. And you can just go through the table and read it that way. All right, so let's move on to the next slide. And talk about time and materials contracts. With well, the time and materials contracts, this is basically a cross, if you will, a combination, a merger of fixed price and cost reimbursable contracts where you don't really know how much the material is going to be, perhaps. Or you do, but you're not sure how much you're going to use. 
is a better way to say that. You know, it's so much per unit, but you don't know how many units you're going to use. Well, you know the amount of units, but the cost over time varies depending on what's going on. So you don't know when you're first awarded the contract. So you do time and materials, and this allows a cost reimbursable clause to kick in because the cost will continue to grow perhaps over the contract's life. You just don't know what it's going to be. In this case, the buyer bears the biggest risk in this type of contract. You, the project manager, bears the biggest risk because you just don't know what the end cost is going to be. You have a rough ballpark, perhaps, in your mind what it's going to be, but the final cost isn't unknown until you actually finish. And time and materials contracts can resemble fixed price contracts if unit rates are used. So, as I said, so much per unit, and uh, you can figure it out. But you just don't know how long it's going to take unless if you set, well, I'm only going to pay for 10 units. So that's just like a fixed price contract. You're fixing the price for 10 units, you're not going to pay any more. So why bother with time and material? Make it be a fixed price type of thing. Okay? Let's move on to the next slide. And here we have yet another graph of that risk meter, but now we've made it a whole lot bigger, so it takes the entire slide, and basically we've just, put the letters in, in the position. So up in the upper left-hand corner where the contractor has all the risk and that the buyer, you, the project manager, has none, is your fixed price way down the bottom where the contractor has no risk and the buyer, that's you, the project manager, has all the risk. That's a cost contract and things along those lines. So this just gives you a graphical view for those with the slides in front of them, what's going on. Okay, so now we're going to move on to the next slide. Before we do that, any questions on any of that? There was a lot to go over. We'll see if there's any questions on any of those contract types. All right, hearing nothing, I'm going to move on. And we're at the outputs now. We finally reached the outputs. There are seven of those. I'll read them off in case you're walking in the neighborhood or riding a bike someplace. They are a procurement management plan, procurement statement of work, procurement documents, source selection criteria, make or buy decisions, change requests, and project documents updates. So let's move on to the next slide, and we'll hit these one at a time, and then we'll be done for the session. First, there is the procurement management plan. This basically is just like it sounds. You've made a lot of decisions. You've got a lot of information that helps you make those decisions, and now you're just going to document it all. You're going to put it all in the procurement management plan, which is a subsidiary of the project management plan. Now, that's the short description of what it is. A longer description is that there can be a whole lot of stuff that you can document. Uh, there's a list here, things like types of contracts you're going to be able to use, independent estimates, which individual can actually do the procurement, is authorized to contractually bind your project team, your company, to a contract. It has to be in there. And maybe there are standardized documents you need to worry about, any constraints and assumptions, make-buy decisions are in there as well. Uh, how to do them and things like that, certain schedule dates, risk management stuff is in there, and all kinds of things that maybe will help you work on and redefine, uh, change the work breakdown structure as necessary if you're doing a procurement all of a sudden that you weren't expecting to do, something along those lines. And any metrics. Perhaps your organization is sophisticated enough to actually want some metrics in there, and it'll tell you what metrics to capture, how to capture them, what to do with them once you've captured them. All right? There's going to be a lot of stuff in there. It's a planning document because it has the word plan after it. Normally, I launch into a, a minute or so on what's the difference between a planning document and a project document because we also have project document updates. That's one of the outputs here. There's a table in Chapter 4 of the PMBOK Guide, two-column table. One side is what's a planning document. The other column is what's a project document. An easy way to tell is if the word plan or baseline appears in the title, like project management plan, we saw scope baseline, things like that. Those are planning documents. So they go in the planning document bucket. If it doesn't have the word document, uh, word plan or baseline after it, like we just talked about stakeholder register, we'll talk about risk register in a bit, talk about project schedule, those are project documents because they don't have the word plan or baseline after them, and that's an easy way to tell for the exam. Let's go on to the next slide. And we'll talk about procurement statement of work. Now, statement of work is also called an SOW. You've maybe seen that. And you might have put a statement of work together during the project charter period to describe what it is you're doing. It's a, like a precursor step before the project plan, if you will. But maybe not. But basically, you're going to describe what it is you're going to be doing. 
besides how that whole thing works out. Each one defines those items you're going to be purchasing. Since we're talking about procurements, you only have to worry about discussing what it is you're going to buy and provide a description of what you're going to be buying, how you're going to buy it, there are certain requirements, things along those lines, how you want to pay for it, things along those lines. Why? This is so important because you're going to use that as the basis for going to solicit sellers. We're going to use that as the basis for a proposal that we'll get into in the next different types of proposals and requests. This is the baseline. This describes what it is you want from these folks, and then the sellers come back with proposals at the end. Right? So that's what a statement of work is all about. You want it to be clear. You want it to be complete and concise because if there's any ambiguity in there, you might wind up with something other than what you thought you wanted to have because they might have determined or interpreted a better way to say that an aspect of what it is they're making for you that you're buying differently than what you do. So be very clear is the point here. All right. And each individual procurement item requires its own statement of work. That way it's very clear that item A is different than item B type of thing. Right? But you can chain them together if you want to. Moving on to the next slide. Uh, then we have our actual make or buy decisions. We've gone through the math, the decision tree that we did a few slides ago. So that gave us the financial impact. Then you're going to add on to that, as I mentioned, anything else, any ethical, any business, any whatever else attributes you want to consider as well in your decision, and then you're going to make your decision. Right? That's how that works. Any political decisions can be in there as well. And then there are change requests. As you're going along doing things, stuff is going to change, and it always does. You're going to find something that doesn't look right. The PMI has this mantra that as long as something is in control, you leave it alone. We're going to talk about last time in quality. But if it's out of control, you have to slap it back into control. That might re that require a change request in order to do that because some process is out of whack. Okay? Same can happen with procurement process. The process itself is out of whack or the vendor that you're buying your product from, something is out of whack with them or maybe not concise enough, so you're putting in a change request to them in order to finely tune that particular element of what is what you want. Right? And any change request has to be processed through the Perform Integrated Change Control Process in the integration knowledge area. Always remember that as well. Move on to the next slide. We'll talk about those procurement documents I mentioned. Those are the things that are documents because they do not have the term plan or baseline after them. These are basically the proposals that you're going to produce. I'll read them off. It'd be a better way to do that. Request for proposal or an RFP, request for information or an RFI, invitation for bid or an IFB, real request for a quotation, RFQ. There's a few others, but those are the most common ones that you'll see, certainly the ones you'll see on the exam. And they basically are going to clearly state what it is you want to buy. It should include the procurement statement of work we just finished talking about and you want to provide some guidance to the sellers of how you want to see the responses coming back. What format would you like? Hard copy only, electronic only. You want a table format. You want a book. You want whatever. All right. Now, as you go through that alphabet soup up there, the request for proposals and information and bids and quotations, there's an inherent category in each one of these. And the way it works out is if you're only worried about the price of something, so you're buying a standard commodity product, if you will, and your real key thing you're, you're honed in on is how much does it cost. As long as it meets a few other general characteristics, you're fine. You don't care so much, but price is key. Then you want to use the term bid and quotation. So you want to use invitation for bid or request for quotation. That in the industry tells the sellers, they better be cheap. Okay? Quality means something, but the product that you're buying needs to be fit for purpose, fit for use for sure, but you're mainly interested in price, and by using the IFB and RFQ, and that clues them in. That price is paramount. It's key. Now, if it's not key and maybe technology-specific approach, a certain way of doing it, that's sort of the same thing as an approach. So if technology or specific approach is the key point, you want to worry about, then you use the term proposal. You put out a request for proposal, and a request for information is just as it sounds. You're asking, well, what do you normally do in this situation? And ask them to respond with what they tend to do, and you see what they say. But you're probably not going to buy anything 
for requests for information. You're doing a request for information mostly to build either the request for a proposal or the invitation for bid or request for quotation. And remember that if price is key, you're using an IFB or RFQ. And if technology or specific approach is key, you're using a RFP, request for a proposal. And that's the big exam point you see down there as well. Understand the difference between bids and quotations and proposals for the exam. And as I said, probably the fourth time now, because it's real important to get it, that's why I'm trying to ram it into you here, is bids or quotation are used when price is the only deciding factor, and proposals are used when there are other considerations other than price. Okay? Any questions on that, star six, before I move along? Okay, I'm going to move along. Procurement documents. Uh, terms and things like this are often used interchangeably. We're worried more about those RFP and RFIs. Those are things that are used interchangeably. And we want to make sure we don't make any unwarranted assumptions about what the implications. Don't use, if price is real important, don't use the term quotation. Okay, wrong thing to do. You're not going to get what you want. All right, so the buyer is going to structure the documents in order to facilitate the type of response they want to receive. So it's up to them to make sure they specify the right stuff. Okay, and the complexity and level of detail for all that stuff should be consistent with what it is you're trying to buy. You're not going to produce a 1,200-page procurement document, maybe for a 10-year widget, whatever the case might be, for something cheap is the point. But if it's something very expensive, you're really concerned about quality and functionality, you're not going to give them a table and say, here's my request for quotation. It's not going to work. So make sure that they match, the complexity and size match. Important documents, important purchases. Cheap documents, cheap purchases. It's one way to look at that. All right? And how do the people find things? Interesting request for potential sellers to submit a proposal is normally done somewhat formally within the policies of the buyer's organization, but you can put them in newspapers, magazines, trade journals, and now on the Internet is a big place to find these things as well. Right, moving on to the next slide. Then there are source selection criteria. These are the things you're going to be using in order to evaluate the proposals that come back. Right, so you've got to decide in your planning meetings what criteria are you going to use because you have to make a decision. And your decision needs to be set up almost like you're doing a project selection decision. You're going to have a waiting system, perhaps, some other way to look at the attributes of the proposals coming back and then understand which attributes are important to you and how well the seller meets those attributes. And from that, you're going to come up the waiting system or the point value or the results, better way to say that, and decide who it is you're going to buy from. All right? And you get all that stuff set up now because that's in the planning phase. This is what you want. And then there are project procurement documents. These are uh, the requirements documents. It's talking about requirements traceability matrix, something we do not get into, but it's just another piece of that table for requirements. You're going to have another column in the table that says who submitted a particular requirement. It must be blue, all right? That was submitted by Dana Safford. It must be a certain size. might be submitted by somebody else. Okay, just where did these requirements come from? So if you have a problem with some of the functionality, whatever it is you're buying, you can go back to the person whose requirement that is, that's most important too, and ask, well, what do you think? Is this acceptable or not? And they'll tell you yes or no. Right? And then risk registers, as it sounds, you get a table of risks and what you're going to do about them. We'll talk about those more in the risk section that we're going to be getting into in probably in a couple sessions from now. All right, and there's other project documents as well, the schedule that we talked about, a bunch of other stuff as well. Okay, now I'm going to move on to what turns out to be the last slide of this session. Now, there's a lot of other things you need to pay attention to when you are doing selection of sellers. And without getting into too much detail, I'll read off some of these. There's a slide of about a dozen different bullet points. It's understanding of need, overall life cycle cost, technical capability, management approach, technical approach, financial capacity, production capacity and interest, business size and type, references, intellectual property rights, and proprietary rights. There's words around those in the slide. You can look at them. But basically, those are some of the other things that you need to pay attention to as you are trying to figure out which seller 
you're going to choose because it's a big decision. You want to pick the right seller that's going to give you what you need in a timely manner at the right price, at the right functionality, quality levels, and that type of thing. And you don't want to make a wrong choice because it could be very expensive if you make the wrong choice. Okay, so with that, we're done. Okay, the nice lady just said all callers are unmuted. I still see a couple of you out there. Any questions from anybody on anything I've gone uh, over? No, no questions. Uh, pretty thorough. Uh, oddly enough, I was just today, uh, I'm in the reading through the planning part of uh, project management, and I've just gotten through the word breakdown structure. And I'm involved in procurement, so a lot of this is uh, I, I knew already from that standpoint, but I'm going through it uh, process. You know, you have one process at a time, and uh, mm-hmm. so I, I'm getting through the work breakdown structure. So uh, it all is uh, getting tied in. Yeah, it should be all all, all tied in. You want to go through if you haven't looked at the scope uh, podcast yet, a scope presentation. It tells you how to do that. Uh, oh yeah, I will. I will. I will. Okay. I'm going to try to quote something. I hope I get it right because it's been a while since I touched that. I think the pin box says that building a work breakdown structure is a five-step process, and that's going to be real important for the exam. Is I'll try to throw a question in there that says, well, it's only a three-step process. Well, that's not the right answer. That's Eric's voice, I think I remember correctly, who's asking this question. We talked in the beginning before we turn on the recording of how some of this stuff is done, and you're absolutely right. You have to provide the right level of information for the exam in order to pass it. Okay, any other questions for anybody out there? Okay, then. All right, so... As no other questions, as a reminder, as PM Lessons Learn conducts three conference calls, we'd love to conduct three conference calls each month. This is the monthly PMP exam study group call and podcast that we're on right now because it's the first Thursday of the month. And when we're at full strength on the second Thursday of the month, we'd love to have our PM Lessons Learn job shop call. When folks in transition or with a need to identify a potential career path can go to help each other out. And finally, on the third Thursday of each month, we have our PM Lessons Learn best practices call when we are at full strength. So we need a volunteer for that as well. This call hopefully provides presentations on a wide variety of project management and soft skills topics. Okay, so that's it for this session of the PM Lessons Learned Monthly PMP Exam Study Group Conference Call and Podcast. I'll again thank the live participants on this call. I still see a few of you out there and everyone who downloads the podcast. So the podcasts are doing very well. Got a few thousand downloads for each one, so I thank everybody for doing that over time. I'll remind you that we are pmlessonslearn.com, project managers helping project managers to make a difference. My name is Dana Safford. So long and keep on learning. This has been a PM Lessons Learned podcast. Project managers helping project managers by sharing lessons learned. Come join our group. Visit our website at pmlessonslearn.com. Till next time, keep on learning.